Revelation 19. Uh, tonight we'll be looking at verses 1 through 10. As this kind of closes out, at least how I've been breaking it down, it closes out the uh, fifth of seven cycles in the book, Cycles of Vision. So, uh, Revelation 19, starting in verse 1. After these things, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia! Salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. For true and righteous are His judgments, because He has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication, and He has avenged on her the blood of His servants shed by her. Again they said, Alleluia! Her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who sat on the throne saying, Amen, Alleluia! Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you His servants, and those who fear Him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters and as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give Him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then He said to me, Write, Blessed are those who, call, who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb, And he said to me, these are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, see that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. I think that's, isn't that right out of Handel's Messiah, the end of verse Hallelujah for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. I kind of that sounds familiar, yeah. Hallelujah, Hallelujah. <laughs> What's that? Oh no, I'm not. <laughs> I'll stop there. <laughs> That's not what you pay me for. So here we go, Revelation 19. Of course, Revelation 19 comes shockingly or unshockingly after Revelation 18, which we finished two weeks ago. Uh, And as we've been working our way through this fifth of seven cycles that we see between Revelation chapter 4 and Revelation chapter uh, 20. And this, uh, in that section we looked at last week, 21, verses 21 through 24, we see here. You know, I mean, this entire cycle of vision really is about Babylon and the fall and judgment of Babylon. And in verses 21 through 24, we see how her judgment is final, the finality of her judgment. Uh, Babylon, that great harlot that we see in chapter 17, sitting atop the scarlet beast, uh, holding the cup of, of the blood of the martyrs. Uh, she is described as a harlot to signify and to... to illustrate her power to seduce and allure uh, the inhabitants of the earth, both high and low. The kings of the earth, the merchants, high and low. They are lured by this seductress to uh, partake of her fornications. Babylon is described as the mother of prostitutes and of the earth's abominations, who is drunk on the blood of the martyrs. When a very grotesque scene. Uh, I, wouldn't even, I mean, I've, I'm sure I've seen illustrations of it in books and stuff. But this 
gaudily arrayed harlot atop this ugly beast drunk on the blood of the martyrs. Now, of course, Babylon in John's day, when John wrote this, and I believe he wrote this at near the end of the first century, when he wrote this, Rome would have been the manifestation of that beast. Rome would have been Babylon, the Roman Empire. But really, Babylon is just symbolic of all of the evil world system that serves and is served by the evil world kingdoms and governments. In our passage last time also, Babylon, we see here an angel uh, ties a giant millstone to Babylon. Give, as we talked about it two weeks ago, he gave her some cement shoes, right? You know, like in the old gangster movies. Put on a pair of cement shoes and, and just took her and tossed her into the midst of the sea and she sinks. In doing so, when the angel does that, in doing so, this current evil age then is also seen as passing away and giving into the age to come. And that's what we kind of see here in this passage, a little bit of a, a glimpse, if you will, into the age to come. And I was thinking about this going through Revelation. Uh, each of these si- cycles ends with the return of Christ, but they don't really describe it all that much. Usually it's just, and they made war with the lamb and they lost. <laughs> or, or, you know, he grinds them in the, in the wine press of the fury of his wrath. And that's all, kind of all you see about it. Or it's even hinted, you know, heaven's open and you hear a voice that says, and now the kingdoms of the world are now the kingdoms of our God and his Christ. But here, in this passage, you're getting a little more of a glimpse. And as we get closer to the end, you're going to see more and more this glimpse of what heaven is like. And even then, it's, not, it's going to pale in comparison to what you see in the Bible because this is just John's Vision. This is what he is seeing in his vision, and he's doing the best he can to describe these things. And oftentimes you see throughout this book, you know, and it looked like this, and it had the sound as this, and this is what, what I heard, and, and so on and so forth. But we're starting to get a little bit of a glimpse here of the end of the age and the return of Christ. Now, we saw the return of Christ, of course, in chapter 17 when the uh, kings of the earth make war with the lamb, and the lamb overcomes them. So the, 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 the kingdoms of the world have been conquered by the Lamb. Uh, then you see Babylon judged. That's all of chapter 18. Uh, and now in chapter 19, you see the heavens are, are uh, just breaking out into praise. And we're going to see the consummation in the uh, supper, the marriage supper of the Lamb, which we'll uh, talk a little bit about in a, moment, in a few moments. But in contrast to all of the lamenting that we saw in chapter 18, the kings of the earth lament the fall of Babylon. The merchants of the earth lament the fall of Babylon. The the sea captains lament the fall of Babylon as they are lamenting and say, alas, alas, Babylon, that great city has fallen, has fallen. She has been, she has fallen in an hour and, you know, we can no longer, you know, enjoy our little party and so on and so forth. The contrast, as we see now, is in heaven, there's rejoicing. There's rejoicing in heaven at the fall of Babylon. Those who dwell on the earth mourn and lament the fall of Babylon. And that's much like what you've, we have seen all throughout human history. Whenever empires rise and they fall, people mourn over the fall of that empire. Oh, what it was like in the good old days. You know, talk to any, take, talk to your average 
Londoner or Brit. You know, the, oh, the good old days of you know, the British Empire when we were kings of the world and so on and so forth. They lament the fall of their empire. And every time a manifestation of the beast falls, those who exploited the system for power or wealth lament the loss of their power or wealth. But the saints of the Most High God, the saints of, the, you know, of Christ, the saints of God, the church, has really, if you think about it, we've lived as a church, as an entity, through the rise and fall of many nations. <laughs> right? That's why the church is described as a pilgrim people. We're not of this world. Our kingdom is not of this world. And, and, and as such, it, it doesn't bother us when nations, or shouldn't bother us, I should say, when kingdoms rise and fall, when empires rise and fall, because we know our God reigns in heaven now, and, and, and that is a source of praise for us and a source of hope and consolation for us. I'm, I'm thinking back to a movie line. I won't mention the movie because no one's going to get it. <laughs> you might get it, but uh, I'll tell you later. <laughs> uh, but... Uh, there was a conversation between two people, and they were talking about the, you know, the, the you know, I'll just, you know, someone says, I'm going to destroy your world, and the, the other character says, ah, I'm Russian, we tend not to worry about such things, you know, the, the, the fall of nations or something like that. Well, we're Christians, we shouldn't worry so much about the fall of nations. We have lived through many political systems, many economic systems, but we are citizens of a heavenly kingdom, and our hope is not in Babylon, that's why we rejoice. Now, we saw a little bit of a glimpse of that rejoicing in verse 20, right? When, uh, which would have been two sessions ago. Where, whereas you get, you know, lament, lament, lament. At the end of that, you hear a command of the angel saying to the saints and apostles in heaven, Rejoice over her, over her fall, for God has avenged you on her. So, in other words, rejoice because the day of vengeance has come. The day of your vindication has come. Therefore, you saints in heaven, rejoice. This is your time that you've been waiting for. Right? You know, the saints under the altar in, in the fifth seal in chapter 6 are sitting there crying out to God, how long, O Lord, until you avenge our blood? Well, here you go. It's here. It's now. Rejoice because He has avenged you on her. So here we're going to see in this passage the twin themes of judgment and rejoicing as this fifth of seven cycles ends with the marriage supper of the Lamb. And what we see first in verses 1-5 through five is a party in heaven. Ain't no party like a heaven party, right? <laughs> to, to borrow the lingo of the kids these days. <laughs> but... Uh, Jesus, or sorry, John begins our passage by saying, after these things, look at verses 1 through 3, after these things I heard, depending on your translation, you may have, you may have uh, as of or something like, I heard as it were, is that what the ESV says? What seemed to be, yeah, yeah, different textual tradition. After these things I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments, because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication, and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. Again they said, Alleluia, her smoke rises up forever and ever. Now the after these things, of course, that's a, that's, 
you know, that's a, a, a signpost to say, you know, things that we just said, chapter 18, chapter 17, 18, after these things, moves the visions along and refers back to what we saw in chapter 18, in particular the judgment of Babylon and her being cast into the sea. And after that vision of judgment, John then hears a loud voice, or the, 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 a great voice, the, the loud voice of a great multitude. And as we saw, you know, ESV, other translations add what seemed to be a loud voice. In other words, the, the, the preserving, uh, the, 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 yeah, the preserving, the visionary, apocalyptic, uh, prophetic nature of Revelation. That's what that phrase is there for. But this voice is of a great multitude in heaven. Now, the last time we encountered a great multitude in heaven was way back in John. Uh, John, I got John in the brain today. I mean, John wrote this, but in Revelation chapter 7, Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, it's a twin vision. It's an interlude vision between the sixth and seventh seals. But again, in chapter 7, verse 9, you get another one of these after these things phrases. I looked up and behold a great multitude, which no one can number of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and with palm branches in their hands. Now, if you recall from our time in Revelation 7, which was quite a while ago, actually, it was in, uh, if you want the exact dates, May 16th and June 6th of last year. That's when we looked at these... at chapter 7, but we noted that this is an interlude between the 6th and the 7th seals, and it shows the church during this period of tribulation. And the question, because the question is asked in verse 17 of chapter 6, um, who is able to stand, right? The 6th seal is open, and you get these dramatic uh, judgment um, images of mountains and islands being moved out of their place and the stars falling from heaven and the sun uh, being, becoming black as sackcloth, the moon becoming like blood, and people cry out to the mountains, fall on us and hide us from the face of him. See, so, I mean, here, you know, final judgment's coming and instead of repenting, the wicked of the earth just try to hide from God. It's not going to help you. Uh, fall on us and hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. For, great, uh, for the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Well, who is able to stand? The church is able to stand. That's what you see in chapter 7. The sealed of Israel are here. Um, so you've got this, who is able to stand, and it's those who have been sealed. Um, the first half of chapter 11, we argued, shows the church militant as she is numbered like the fighting age men of Israel in the Old Testament are numbered. They, they numbered the fighting age men and they're arrayed in battle, in battle array. So these are the saints on the earth, the church on the earth, the church militant as we are fighting the spiritual warfare. But in the second half, starting in verse 9, this is the church triumphant, the church in heaven. They are standing before the throne as a great multitude which cannot be numbered of every uh, people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. So what John here is saying back in chapter 19 is um, he is hearing this loud voice. He is hearing the loud voice of the church triumphant and the the angelic hosts and all of them are crying out, Alleluia! Salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. 
saints are in heaven are praising God for His salvation. They are praising Him for His glory and His honor and His power. And the word that they use there, Alleluia, of course, that is taken right out of the Hebrew in the Old Testament for the word Hallelujah, which is really, I mean, I think even in Greek it has the rough breathing mark, so it should be Hallelujah, but either way, it's just a word from Hebrew brought into Greek, and it's used 24 times in the entire Bible, and only in two books, in the Psalms and here. <laughs> All right, so it's like 20 times in the Psalms, mostly in Psalms like 113 to 118, and the last five songs, the song, you know, the the, the great praise songs at the end of the Psalter and the, what they call the Hallel Psalms in 113 to 118. Uh, you see that word there, hallelujah. It's just, it's a command. It says, praise the Lord. That's, that's the translation. Praise the Lord. You know, we read it this morning from Psalm 115. Praise the Lord. Praise Him in the highest heavens. Praise Him with timbrels and harps and so on and so forth. Praise the Lord. And the only four times in the New Testament are all right here in the passage that we just read. In Revelation chapter 19. It's a hallelujah chorus of the saints as they praise God. And I find it very interesting that it's right here, right? Because it's right after judgment. And the saints are now finally praising God for the the culmination and the, the consummation of all of His great and wondrous works. Now they praise, the heavenly praise chorus worships God, as we see here, for true and righteous are His judgments. True and righteous are His judgments. Verse 2. For He has judged the great harlot. Now human beings, of course, because we're created in the image of God, though fallen, we are interested, very interested in justice. Problem is the kind of justice we're interested in isn't biblical justice, That's, right? You know, they always throw these these adjectives on the front of justice: social justice, economic justice, uh, environmental justice, racial justice, this justice, that justice. And whenever you modify justice, you're not getting justice anymore. You're getting whatever the modifier is. You're getting racial, <laughs> environmental, economic. Okay, but you're not getting justice. But, we are interested in some type of justice. And again, it's because we are created in God's image, who Himself is true and righteous. He is a just God. So we are created in His image. We are also at least interested in some kind of justice. Of course, the problem is due to the fall, we will never find true and righteous judgment or justice in this world. We might get some measure of it, Right? We might get some measure of justice in this world. And also we get a whole lot of perverted justice in this world, unfortunately. Sad to say. But we, what we see here is that God's judgments are true and just. And living life under the sun, S-U-N sun, the, sun, the big fiery ball in the sky, living life under the sun, we often cry out to God for justice. Justice, vindicate us, O Lord. How many times do you see that in the Psalms and in the book of Job and so on and so forth? Vindicate us, O Lord. Bring justice to my situation, O Lord. Avenge me, O Lord. And many of us die oftentimes without seeing this true justice carried out in this life. So we might be tempted to doubt 
God and his justice. You know, if we've lived our entire lives and we felt like we've been treated unjustly, we might doubt that God is just, or at least he's maybe very slow in bringing justice. At least, yeah, right, Job. You're reading through the Bible according to the Ligonier plan and table talk, you should be in Job now. And that's a lot of what you're getting is, you know, try me, God. <laughs> of course, then when Job 38, that's my favorite part in the whole book of Job, is when Job 38 comes and, and God speaks and he says, who is this who darkens wisdom without knowledge? You know, it's like, dress up, gird your loins like a man and I will speak to you. You know, it's like, and Job's like, <laughs> but uh, anyway, that's not Revelation. We want justice, and we might be tempted to doubt God and his justice. Well, doubt no longer, because here in verse 2, true and righteous are his judgments. Why? Because he has judged the harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication, and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. The harlot has been judged. The world system has been judged. Babylon is fallen, and God is the one who has cast her down. The one who corrupted all the rulers, all of the merchants of the world, and everyone else with her fornication. That is, she seduced people to worship the beast, has been judged. And the church has been avenged. The church has been avenged. As we saw in chapter 18, verse 20, Rejoice over her, O heavens, in you holy apostles and prophets, for God has avenged you on her. No one in heaven will have any complaints on God's judgment and vengeance because they have been carried out in true righteousness and justice. And again, we see the church praises God in verse 3 as they say, Alleluia, her smoke rises up forever and ever. They praise God as the smoke of Babylon rises. Now we saw the smoke of Babylon in chapter 18, right? Verse 9, where um, we see when they see the smoke of her burning. In verse 18, uh, when they saw the smoke of her burning. So we already see her burning, right? But also think of in Genesis 19, when God judges Sodom and Gomorrah. The next morning, Abraham goes out, and where he saw the cities of the plain of the valley. He now just sees a smoking hole in the ground and he saw the smoke rising up as almost like an offering to God. The smoke rises up to God. We also see the smoke rising in Revelation 14, verse 11. Different vision. And as um, this is, uh, these are the, the trying to think of the, I think this is the three proclamations of the three angels. Um, yeah, then the third angel, verse 9, then the third angel followed. So there's the three angels, they cry out, and the third angel says, if anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Just pause right there. A lot of people like to think hell is where God ain't going to be. Not according to this. They are judged and they are tormented with fire in the presence of the Lamb. I think the wicked wish God wasn't in hell. (laughs) 
because God is in hell in judgment, in wrath. Uh, Verse 11, And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, and who worship the beast in his image, and whoever receives the mark of his name. So here again you see this, as the wicked are judged, the smoke of their torment just continually ascends. It's just continually ascending. Um, you don't necessarily have to turn there, but in uh, Isaiah 34, this is a judgment on Edom. Edom, that is um, Israel's cousins. You know, they're sort of like cousins, like the various Greeks are cousins. <laughs> you know, in in in, in uh, Sutton here, you know, it's like, are you really? Well, we might be somewhere down the line. You know, we might have a great great grandfather who's you know who's connected, but. Uh, uh, Edom, um, the, they're the descendants of Esau, which was Jacob's brother. Um, and in verse 30, chapter 34, verse 10, the judgment on Edom says, It shall not be quenched night or day, its smoke shall ascend forever. From generation to generation it shall lie waste. No one shall pass through it forever and ever. Again, that vision, that, that imagery, I should say, of this smoke rising forever is a continual, in a sense you can think of it as a continual offering of, of wrath because the smoke will never die, the, 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 the sacrifice is continually being burnt on the altar and the smoke rises up forever and ever. It's a sign of the everlasting nature of Babylon's judgment as the smoke of her, de- de- uh, her devastation rises forever. Now, Again, people in the world may think, well, that seems cruel or harsh, maybe even masochistic. Why would the saints in heaven be rejoicing over the fall of Babylon and the fact that her smoke rises up forever and ever? That seems harsh. That seems cruel. It seems even masochistic to be praising God as the smoke of his enemies rises up before him. Well, the difference might be subtle, but it's not rejoicing in the pain and suffering of the uh, mourners of Babylon, it's rejoicing over the justice of God that is being carried out and of the vindication of those who have perished at the hand of Babylon. If we cannot be, if we cannot rejoice over justice being done, then there's something wrong with us. I mean, I don't want to get into this too deeply, but even now you see people saying, well, we shouldn't be too vocal about the fact that Roe v. Wade got overturned because there are a lot of people already, and I get that, I understand that, but can't we also rejoice in the fact that a bad ruling has been overruled and that at least in the States there's a chance now that babies won't be slaughtered by the hundreds of thousands each year? Can't we rejoice in that at least small measure of justice being done? I think we can and we should. Rejoice in God's judgment and justice being carried out. Not in the tormenting of, of the torment of the of the wicked, but in the fact that justice has been carried out. Again, we are justice seeking creatures, so it is only fitting that we break out in praise when the true and righteous judgments of God are carried out. And not to be outdone, but the angelic hosts then join in the praise in verses four and five of chapter nineteen. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sat on the throne saying, Amen, Alleluia, the third one, the third Alleluia. 
Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants and those who fear him, both small and great. Now again, we first saw the 24 elders and the four living creatures. The four living creatures, of course, are the cherubim. They're the ones who sort of guard the holy presence. Not that he needs guards, but it, you know, the idea, if you've got a large retinue, that means you're important. And he's got these four cherubim that are completely, you know, they surround the throne of God and they, they sort of, in a sense, guard the, the glory and holiness of God. Uh, so the four living creatures are there and the 24 elders, various interpretations on who they are. I think there are angels that represent God's people, the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 disciples of, of our Lord and Jesus Christ. But the first time we saw them was back in Revelation 4. And even there, we saw them night and day praising God. Holy, holy, holy is the one who, who sits on the throne. They praise the Lord. They praise Him then and they're doing so now as His judgments are being carried out. And finally, a voice from the throne. Well, whose voice is it? I don't know. It just says a voice from the throne. Now, I don't think it's God's voice because it, then it might say something like the voice of the one who sits on the throne. Um, so it could be an angel. doesn't matter. There's a voice from the throne, a voice from somewhere in the area of the throne, now calling all of the servants, great and small, to praise our God. Angel and human, great and small, all joining in this heavenly praise course over the fall of Babylon. So that is the praise and the party in heaven. And now, if that's not enough, in verses 6 or 8, John hears even more from this great multitude. Look at verse 6. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude as the sound of many waters and as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, the fourth one. Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Now here we see that, that phrase added in there, right? Uh, verse 6, I heard as it were, or what sounded to be, or what seemed to be. So that, you know, it, it's, it's, a, it's an adverbial phrase. It's one word in the Greek, but it, it often is translated as it were. Again, this is suggesting, this is how John is perceiving what he is receiving from God, from, from the angels, from the visions. He, re, he perceives this as a large multitude, the voice of a large multitude that sounded like many waters, sounded like the mighty thunderings, and, and they're saying Alleluia again. Now it's possible it's another great multitude. I, I just think it's probably the same great multitude, this heavenly chorus, this this host of angels and, and the saints in heaven. Uh, but this time, he describes the sound in a little more detail. He says that the voices sounded like the sound of many waters and the sound of mighty thundering. Now, right, many waters, right? If you've ever been to like, a, like Niagara, large water falling, you know, just, you know, real, real loud. If you ever by the, the ocean, when the, when the tide is coming in, the waves just keep pouring in, you know, real loud sound of water uh, moving or thundering. You know, we all know how that sounds. Um, he's just describing this, right? Back in chapter 1, verse 15, he heard the voice of the exalted Christ, and he described that voice as the roar of many waters, and in chapter 6, verse 1, the voice of the first cherub as he breaks the seal, 
the voice is heard like thunder. And we see the same thing in chapter 14, verse 2, when a voice from heaven is described as the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. And that's what this large multitude sounds like. Think of it, okay, back in the, when was it, 95, 6, and 7, right, when the Huskers were last really good, okay, if you ever gone to Memorial Stadium back in those days, how loud did it get there? Pretty loud, I would imagine, right, you know, anytime they scored a touchdown, anytime they stopped the opponent, I'm sure there was much cheering and loud, thunderous voices, what a loud multitude sounds like. And here we see the fourth hallelujah in the chapter as this great multitude cries out, Hallelujah for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Now, again, you might be thinking, wait a minute. I thought God has always reigned, right? Isn't he king of the earth? Isn't, you know, we just saw it this morning, right? The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Isn't God always reigning? Yes, he is, right? God is sovereign creator governs and controls all things. He is in providential control of all things. There is not one molecule in this universe that is not under his control. Again, Psalm 24, 1. We saw it this morning. But in another sense, because of human sin and rebellion, God's kingdom on earth hasn't been established yet. We pray it every week, corporately, right? What do we pray? Thy kingdom come. What are we saying when we say that? Well, besides the words, thy kingdom come, right? We are saying, God, rule here now on earth as you are in heaven. May your kingdom be established. May wickedness be destroyed. May your enemies be subdued. And may your kingdom now take place. And may you reign and rule over your people. For a kingdom, you need a king, you need a realm, and you need a people. Right? And most of the world is in rebellion to God. Now again, it's by His sovereign control. We all know that. But most of the world is in rebellion to God. They are not part of His kingdom. Even though they are under His sovereign control. They are not part of His kingdom. So here we are praying, and here we see, you know, because now, because of the fall of Babylon, now the Lord God omnipotent reigns. In Revelation 11.15, when the seventh trumpet was blown, we get the declaration in verse 15 of chapter 11. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. Again, that last trumpet marking the end of the age is when All of the enemies of God have been subdued, and now the kingdom has been established because the enemies of the kingdom have been defeated. The kingdom has come. So with the fall of Babylon and the smoke of her judgment rising up forever, we get another praise chorus as God's kingdom is established. The Messiah is triumphant. All enemies have been defeated, and now the kingdom has come. We no longer need to pray that at this point. We don't need to pray the kingdom come because it's come. Right? Then we just say, praise to the King, because He has come. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. And now the time for gladness and rejoicing has come in verse 7. Let us be glad and rejoice and give Him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, 
and his wife has made herself ready. So there is great rejoicing and great praise in heaven. Why? Because the purpose for all of redemptive history has come to fruition. The wedding of the Lamb and His bride. Right? In any romantic story, right? When you've got boy meets girl, boy and girl have a problem, boy and girl resolve problem, and then boy and girl go off and they live happily ever after. They get married or what have you. This is the end of the story. Just like in the book of Ruth, the end of the story is when Boaz and Ruth finally get together and they, they've eliminated all of the competitors, right? Mr. No Name, the guy with no name, he bows out of, of the the, you know, the rite of redemption, and now Boaz comes, and that's what you're waiting for, this entire story through the book of Ruth, right? All of that tension built up in the chapters before. Is it going to happen? Is it not going to happen? And then, and then, boom, it happens, and then there's great rejoicing as Boaz and Ruth get married, and here there is great rejoicing in heaven as the lamb and the bride are married. They are, they are, they, they, the marriage is, in a sense, consummated here. And I've mentioned it before, but you can probably summarize redemptive history, in a sense, as a love story between the bride, or between the lamb, the bridegroom, and his bride, the church. Because in eternity past, the father chose a bride for his son. He's like, okay, I'm not trying to put words in God's mouth, but just, you know, bear with me here. You know, I want to give you a bride. I'm going to pick out a bride for you. So he chooses people from before the foundation of the world to be in Christ. Here is your bride. Now the the, the bridegroom has to go and he has to come down into this world and he has to redeem the bride from her sins. He has to pay, as it were, the bride price, the dowry. He pays the bride price on the cross when he when he sheds his blood for her sins and, and her, his blood is shed out and her sins are cleansed and now he has claimed the bride. He has, he, has, he has paid the price. But now he must go away and he must prepare a place for the bride and then he will come at the end of the age and he will take her and they will go together and they will be together forever. That is the greatest love story of all time. And so much to be said here, but I do want to say two things here about what we see here at this marriage supper of the Lamb. One, this is a tangential point. In other words, it's, it's not central to what I want to make, but I, I do want to make this point. Because just as, we, as we've read through four, so far seven verses in chapter 19, and, and we've seen Alleluia four times. We've seen praising, we've seen rejoicing, we've seen shouts of joy, loud voices, thunderous voices, voices of many waters. Do we praise and worship like this in church on Sundays? Now, I'm not saying we need to be hooping and hollering and doing cartwheels like Jake Blues down the aisle here in the Blues Brothers. I'm not saying that. But are we excited when we come to church? Are we excited to be in the presence of God's people, to be worshiping Him? Because every Sunday we come here is a foretaste of this marriage supper. And we're like, well, that seems pretty bland, right? I mean, we're sitting here in these hardback wooden pews. No, 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 no. Don't think of it that way. That's earthly. We are in the presence of God when we worship together corporately. It's not that God is only present in this building, but He meets with us every Sunday. We should be excited about this. And as a pastor, I hope and I pray I don't make worship rote and boring. 
And if to the extent that I do, I, I, I seek your forgiveness because it is my job, in a sense, to sort of get you excited about church. And if I don't do that, then I'm, in a sense, failing in my job. That's part of it, at least. To, to, to be excited to come here, to be excited to learn from his word, to be excited to fellowship with the saints. But if you come to church and you're bored, and it's not because of me, <laughs> then may I suggest that the problem might be in you. Because, again, each Sunday is an opportunity. It's a privilege, Right? We need to get out of this, i got to go to church on Sunday. Yeah, i got to come to church. It's like, okay. No, no. You get to come to church. You get to come to church, right? God has given you one day in seven. You get to worship God. He's like, take a day off, come and fellowship with the saints, and worship with me. Just one day. Come and worship. It's an awesome privilege to do this. Each and every Sunday is an awesome privilege and an opportunity to worship our awesome Savior for all of the wonderful things that he has done for us. That was my tangential point. (laughs) Sorry if I got a little worked up on that one. But the second point I wanted to make on this one is here is marriage is a picture of the union we've seen. You know this, but it's a picture of the union we see between the church, and Christ, right? As such, marriage is a sign of this greater reality that is found in our union with Christ, right? We, you know, marriage is a wonderful thing. It is a wonderful gift, and we have many blessed marriages here that have lasted many, many decades, and I, I pray that my wife and I will be able to celebrate a few more decades. I don't think we'll get up to 60. I think that might be pushing it a little bit, considering we'd be in our 90s. I mean, But, you know, marriage is an awesome uh, joy and privilege. But it points to a greater reality, and that is the union that we have with Christ. This spirit-wrought union that Christ has with his people as we are by faith brought into union with Christ. And we are then given all of the benefits that Christ has won for us. In fact, I mean, all of those benefits are wrapped up in Christ, so we don't come to Christ for the benefits. We come for Christ. He is the treasure of great price. He is the pearl of infinite worth, right? We often treat Jesus as like a, a holy Pez dispenser. We come and, like, Jesus, give us a blessing, and then, you know, out pops the Pez. And I know I got Pez from you last year when I did that. But <laughs> I didn't get the Pez dispenser, I just got the candy, but... That's okay, they're probably for your grandkids anyway. But it's like we come to Jesus, like, give me, give me another blessing. Out comes the Pez, and there's your blessing. No, no, Jesus is the blessing. Jesus is the pearl of great price. And our union with him is, is, is just foreshadowed in the, the blessed union of man and wife in marriage. And as seen in Jesus' own words, marriage is a reality of this age, Right? He even tells uh, the one of somebody who came up and asked him a question. He says, "Look, in 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 the age to come, there is no marriage. There is no marrying and giving." Oh, he was talking to the Sadducees. Now it just popped into my head. <laughs> he was talking to the Sadducees because they brought him this silly little tongue twister to try to trap him. It's like, okay, this guy, you know, married a woman and then he died, and he had seven brothers, and they all married her, and then she died. It's like, whose wife is she in heaven? Ha ha ha! We got you, Jesus. It's like you don't know the scriptures. Yeah. <laughs> 
So he says, no, 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 there is no marriage in the age to come. Why? Because we will be married to the, to the Lamb. The church will be the bride of Christ. So the people of God, whether Israel in the Old Testament or the church in the New Testament, have often been called the bride of God. Isaiah 54 talks about this. Isaiah 54 and verses 5 through 8. Here God says, For the Maker, speaking to Israel, the Maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is His name, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He is called the God of the whole earth. For the Lord has called you like a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit, like a youthful wife when you were refused, says your God. For a mere moment I have forsaken you, but with great mercies I will gather you. With a little wrath I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness I will have mercy on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. The people of God are the bride of God. And here it's like, you know, this idea of I had wrath with you for a little while and I hid my face from you. You know, it's when, you know, again, Israel as the wife is often seen as, unfortunately, an unfaithful wife. And, and uh, you see that no more perfectly than in the book Hosea, right? That's, that's what that whole, at least the first three verses of Hosea is, where Hosea is a living, walking parable of God's relationship with Israel because they hoard after other gods. But in Hosea chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, God says to Israel, I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness, in justice, in loving kindness, in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Again, the Lord speaking kindly to his unfaithful wife says, I will betroth you to me forever. And of course, we all know that famous passage in Ephesians 5 that speaks of Christ and the church, where Paul says that he, God, might sanctify, or Christ, I should say, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So we're told here that Christ is the bridegroom, the church is the bride, God is the husband, Israel is the bride. Now, of course, the bride has not always been faithful as we've seen to her bridegroom, but again, praise the Lord, hallelujah, God is faithful. As we saw, I was angry with you for a little while, but I, 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 I called you again. Or as he says in Hosea, I will betroth you to me forever. We also see in verse 7 of chapter 19 of Revelation, as the bride makes herself ready or has made herself ready. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. And then in verse 8, And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. So here, you know, even though this cycle is mainly... Uh, focusing on the judgment of Babylon, it really is a contrast of two women. You've got the harlot and you've got the bride. You've got the harlot arrayed in, in, in uh, you know, 
gaudy clothing, colorful, red and purple and scarlet and all this stuff, and she's all made up like a harlot. And here you have the bride who is pure and chaste and refined. She's dressed in fine white linen. And it's a beauty that is granted to her there. Uh, the harlot is beautiful and seductive, but in the inside, she, her, she's ugly. She's like the whitewashed tomb that Jesus talks about with the Pharisees. You're like whitewashed tombs. You're fine to look at on the outside, but inside you're full of death and decay. And, and the same thing with this harlot. She looks seductive, but as we saw you know, when we, at some point, I think we look back at, you know, like Proverbs 7, you know, the seductress is out there, and the, and the guy who's looking through his lattice says, I saw a young man walking in the wrong place, and, and there's the seductress out at the right time, and she lures him in with all this stuff, and, and it's like, you know, and the guy's like, you're going to your doom. <laughs> you know, he, he, he's lured by the outward appearance and not by the beauty that is within. But again, this is a beauty that is granted to the church, right? It was granted to her to be arrayed in fine linen, verse 8, clean and bright. To the world, the church is like Cinderella, right? <laughs> you know, in the old fable, Cinderella, right? She's, a, you know, she's this kind of, you know, the third sister, and she's dressed shabbily, and she's got hand-me-down clothes, and she's told to clean this and clean that. And if you've seen the Disney cartoon, she's all scuffed and everything, but she's got a beauty inside, right? But anyway, but once she puts on that magic slipper, all of a sudden, boom, she's transformed into this beautiful uh, bride, this beautiful princess, right? And that's the church, right? We're kind of on the outward. We look kind of dirty and unclean, and, and, and you know, we're, we, we sin, but, but we will be granted to have this fine white linen. The bride is allowed to clothe herself in fine white linen, and this beautiful wedding gown as we see here, are the righteous deeds of the saints. Now, these righteous acts are not meritorious. They don't earn or merit uh, the salvation, but they are the good works that God gives us to do, right? Ephesians 2, 8 and 10, For by grace you have been saved, and this not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not of faith, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For you have been called. You are God's workmanship, right? And you are called to the good works that he has prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. So this is practical righteousness. The practical righteousness is an outworking of our faith and, and is, is a gift, in a sense, by God himself. He grants us the faith. He, he sanctifies us. And then these good works, God is, condescends to reward. Because God is not obligated to reward our good works. Uh, in fact, you know, again, to use that parable from, from Jesus, right? You know, the servant goes out. You know, we should just count ourselves as unworthy servants, <laughs> Right? You know, the servant does not expect to get praised by the master because he does what he's supposed to do. But the thing is, is that God does praise us. Again, not because we earn or deserve it, but because he condescends to praise us. I've used this example before too, right? You, you've got it, well, most of us, you know, and now I can say because we have grandchildren. Um, your grandchild draws you a picture. It looks like, you know, if you were to be an art critic, that picture would look like garbage, okay? It's, a, it's, it's an ugly little stick figure. It's probably uneven. You might have three fingers on one hand and six on the other. But you don't say, this is awful. Take it back and give me another one. No, you're like, give me that picture. I'm going to put it in a frame. I'm going to hang it on my wall because I love you. You are my child. 
And the child's like, yay, I'll draw you another picture, you know, and, and that's what they do, right? You are, being, you are condescending to, to reward that labor. And you, you, you praise it, not because it's a beautiful work of art, but because your child did it for you. And God is gracious in that he condescends to reward our obedience and all the more reason to shout hallelujah. And now, finally, we get to the third point, benediction in heaven, verses 9 and 10. So the angel now has a closing benediction to pass on to John in verse 9. Then the angel said to me, Right, blessed, benediction, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. Now there are seven blessings, seven benedictions, of course, right? Seven. (laughs) In a book of Revelation that's full of sevens. Seven benedictions... In the book of Revelation, the word there, Markarios, uh, blessed, happy. Um, and this is the fourth one. You see the first one in chapter 1, verse 3, where you are blessed when you read or hear this. Uh, chapter 14, verse 13. Chapter 16, verse 15. This one. Uh, then chapter 20, verse 6. Chapter 22, verse 7. And chapter 22, verse 4. Hope you weren't trying to write those down. <laughs> um, if you've got a good concordance, just look blessed and, and, and just look for the Revelation uh, references. But again, I'll read those slowly. Chapter 1, verse 3. Chapter 14, verse 13. Chapter 16, verse 15. This passage, chapter 19, verse 9. Chapter 20, verse 6. Chapter 22, verse 7. And chapter 22, verse 14. Those are the seven benedictions. And a benediction here is pronounced, a blessing is pronounced on all who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now the alternative, if, you don't, <laughs> if you're not called to this wedding feast, if you're not called or invited to, to this wedding feast, is the great supper of God, which we will see Lord willing, in a couple of weeks, in verse 17, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God. And guess what the birds are eating? The flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. So you're either part of the marriage supper of the Lamb, or you're part of the great supper of of the wrath of God after Jesus comes and slays all of the arrayed armies against him. The birds are invited to come and feast. Now I'm reminded again of another parable, the parable of the wedding feast in Matthew 22. In Matthew 22, you know this parable. It's the, uh, but in Matthew 22, Jesus tells a parable And in this parable, he says, Jesus answered and spoke to them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son. So in case you think I'm off base by saying that the story of redemptive history is the story of the father arranging a bride for his son, well, you know, the kingdom of heaven is like that. And sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding, and they were not willing to come. Again, he sent out other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened calf are killed and all things are ready. Come to the wedding. 
But they made light of it and went their way, one to his own farm, another to his, brother, to his business. And the rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. But when the king heard about it, he was furious, and he sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers, and burned up their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore, go into the highways, and, and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. So he said to him, Friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the servant, Bind him hand and foot and take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. So those who are invited and who attend are treated to a lavish banquet at this great wedding feast. And those who prove unworthy are cast into outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Or to borrow the language from earlier in chapter 19 where the smoke rises up forever and ever. This is a similar parable in Matthew 25 of the, the ten virgins, right? You've got five foolish and five wise and they are the virgin attendants of the bride, right? And they're waiting, and they're waiting for the bridegroom to come, and the, t- the five foolish don't have their, oil, their lamps prepared. So they're told, they, they try to borrow some oil, and the, the five wise ones says, you need to go to the oil store and get some. So they go, and then that's when the bridegroom comes, and he gathers the bride, and all the attendants go in this great party, and they go off to where the wedding feast will be. And then the five foolish virgins run and they go to the door and then when they knock, they say, don't know who you are, sorry. You know, the wedding is full. And they are truly blessed who are called to this wedding feast. And then to put an exclamation on this point, in the benediction, the angel says, these are the true sayings of God. And then what does John do when he hears all this? Well, look at verse 10 of chapter 19 of Revelation. Help if I go back there too. And I, John, fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, See that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now, on the one hand, you could say, John, you should know better. (laughs) What are you doing worshiping an angel? You know he is a creature like you, right? What are you doing, John? Then on the other hand, part of me doesn't blame John. And the reason part of me doesn't blame John is because I can't imagine what seeing this vision must have done to him. As I hinted at earlier, most of these visions that end with the return of Christ don't give us much more than the fact that he comes. And now we're given a little bit more picture here of what happens after he comes in this great feast. And here's John. John is at the end of his life, right? He's 80-something years old. I don't know exactly how old he is, but he's the last remaining disciple. He is the last of the twelve. He is the last one. And here here he is on Patmos. He's been exiled for for his testimony. And, and, And here he is at the end of his life. And he's been granted this awesome privilege to be the recipient of these visions of hope and salvation. Here he is 
uh, suffering for the faith, and he is writing to a group of churches who are suffering for the faith, and he gets this vision of hope and salvation, and it culminates in this great wedding feast, this amazing feast of celebration. And it's made all the more amazing because John was there, right? The last time when Jesus had a feast with his disciples, he was there. And he heard Jesus say the words, right? I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until I drink it again with you in the kingdom. So I don't blame John when he falls down at the feet of the angel and worships because he's just so taken with emotion over what he has seen, how this is all going to come out. Of course, the angel has to smack him up the side of the head and says, no, no, don't worship me. Worship God. But here we are at the end of this passage. Next time, Lord willing, we will look on to what I'm going to call the sixth of the seventh uh, visions here as we will see the return of Christ told in full, sort of like the, the, the unedited version of the return of Christ as he comes on the white horse of victory. But I will stop here